let's start again. The Bible reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we're reading verses 1 to 7. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is the word of the Lord. Two announcements that I forgot to give. Firstly, Pastor Charlie and Elena are away on holidays. Pastor Charlie has taken three weeks off and they're going to be travelling somewhere in Queensland, I expect. So pray for them and they'll be back early October. Um, so they're away. And there's a video from the Gideon's uh, ministry. So there's a, we're going to watch that now. So if you turn your eyes to the screen. Thanks, Paul. Commend it to you. Who got a Gideon's New Testament when you went to high school? Look at that. Who read it? <laughs> Very good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again that we have the opportunity to gather together, both not just in the building, but also together online. We want to ask, Heavenly Father, that you would speak truth to us out of this passage, that you might guide us as a church. You're the one who uh, appoints leaders. So, Lord, help us to listen, to learn, and to discern your will and direction. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus, the head of the church. Amen. Over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look at different dimensions of leadership. This morning, we're looking at the qualifications for a person to be an elder or in leadership in our church. Sweetheart, I've left that control thing over there. Um, <clears throat> and then next Sunday, I'm going to look at maybe 
what the Bible teaches about the sort of structure that we've got, what we should be looking for in terms of not just the people to be in it, but what their roles and responsibilities are. For those of you who are, most of you are aware, but some may not be, we have just changed our constitution um, and we now have a, a group of people called the board, then we have an ongoing group of people called the pastoral team, made up of pastors and elders, and we have a management team, we have directors and ministry leaders, um, they're the, like the deacons, if you like, in the structure of our church. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we move forward over the next couple of services. And then you'll be given a nomination form and you'll be invited to look out amongst you to see if there are people you would want to recognise as shepherds, as elders in our church, or people who would be suitable to serve on the board uh, for our church. There is no limit to the number of elders that we can have on our pastoral team. There is a limit to the number of people we can have on the board. I think that number peaks out at seven. At the moment we have three, but those three that are there need to be reappointed or they'll step down. So we have to appoint up to a maximum of seven people on the board. So that's where we're going. The church, the, <clears throat> the church is God's idea, we know that. That was his plan and intention all along to save out a people and to adopt them into his family, to be his children, to be his brothers and sisters together with a heavenly father. <clears throat> and God has given us not just that structure, that organisation, because the church does need to be organised, um, but he's also given us our beliefs, the things that we are to hold in common together. So there's orthodoxy and there's organisation. Both are necessary for a, a church to be healthy. What kind of church does God want? Well, he's given us principles in the scriptures. <clears throat> he has not given us a mandated pattern. That's why the church can vary throughout not just cultures and countries and throughout time, but even denominationally. Each one of the denominations, whether it's Anglican or whether it's Presbyterian or whether it's Baptist, Congregational, whatever, believe that our structure is the one that's truest to what the Bible says. But the reality is all of us, are, they're all looking at the same scriptures and seeing and understanding uh, emphasis upon different things. So we're going to skate over some of that. One of the key principles that all hold in common, and it's given to us in the New Testament, not in terms of a very strong teaching, but it's just there by implication, that it's, all, it's said in passing, that that's the way it is. A consistent pattern through the Scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, is that there is a plurality of leadership. It's not impossible, but it's very rare that there is one leader. Often there can be a chief leader, and then there, but there are other leaders who are supporting and so on. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's people, to all God's holy people, the saints, in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers, elders and deacons. Grace and peace to you. It's just said as... Oh, that's just the way the church is structured. But you'll find that pattern consistently um, through all of the New Testament letters. There are words that are used and used synonymously, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but the key is plural leadership and there is equality of leadership. It's not a hierarchy. Um, there's not with one supreme superior leader and the others are in submission to that person. That person for us is the Lord Jesus. He's the head of the church. And he directs his church through his leaders and through his gifted followers. 
So we're going to just focus primarily upon the qualifications this morning. What should we be looking for, for people who should be on the board and for people who should be recognised as elders um, or even pastors, for that matter, using the terms synonymous? We need to be very careful in appointing people to office. We need to discern, we need to examine, we need to be very prayerful. Church leadership can attract people with mixed motives. We are sinful creatures. Some people are hypocrites. You think they're consistent and godly when the, as time passes and you find out, you, work, you, you suddenly discover that actually they're not true believers, they're pretenders, they're hypocrites. I've had that in my time as a pastor. I've had deacons who turned out not to be converted. My very first deacons meeting I had as a pastor at Seaforth Baptist Church, the very first deacons meeting. Uh, half a dozen guys, lovely guys. Halfway through the meeting, this guy got up. He was in charge of the youth, went across to the treasurer. He leaned over to him and he went like this. He was going to punch him. I, with all the discerning wisdom, went... What do you do? I know what I'd do now. I'd deck the young youth guy before he got there. <clears throat> no, I wouldn't. You would ask them both to leave the meeting, wouldn't you? And level heads and calmness. So we need to be careful in the people that we appoint. And as I said, people can have all different sorts of motives, whether they're legalist or, and judgmental or whether they're just in it for the glory and the position or whether they're controlling and manipulative or whatever the motives are. Be careful. Be prayerful. And church leadership, ultimately, whatever sort of leader you are, whether it's on the board, whether it's on the pastoral team, whether it's on the management team, whether you're in charge of a ministry, kids' church, youth, mums meet up, when, if you're in ministry, if you're in leadership, it's all about character, authentic spirituality, leadership flows out of who you are in Jesus, being a godly Christ follower. Well, this passage, let's jump into it, that'll do by way of introduction. Here is a trustworthy saying, the Apostle Paul writes, whoever, whoever desires this, whoever aspires to this, whoever, yeah, I'm open to that and I'm keen for that, they are desiring, and in this case it's an overseer, they are desiring, desiring a noble task. It's commendable. It's an excellent work to be in leadership in the church of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, it's a commendable thing to do. But we are to be discerning in the prayerful, in the process of putting somebody in that position. Um, we should be praying for our children and for our grandchildren, that God would be bringing them to faith and then raising them up, that they might serve in leadership. We should be praying for our friends the same. Leaders are not self-appointed. There is no campaign that we have, and you don't go around with placards saying, vote one for me to be on the board or on the pastoral team. There is no self-promotion. The way it works in the church of the Lord Jesus is the Holy Spirit calls you. He'll place a desire in your heart, a willingness. That's subjective and personal, but that is recognised by the church. Others will recognise that in you. They will recognise whether you have the abilities or the skills and the heart for the job, and you personally will know of your own willingness. So if somebody approaches you and said, would you be willing to consider or would you consider being a leader? If you have a desire, if you're not sure, don't say no immediately. Say, I'll pray about it and see what God does and appoints in your heart because it is a noble task. In this verse, the Apostle Paul uses the word overseer. 
In the King James, that'll be the word bishop, and that has a historical basis to it. And a bishop has a meaning for us in our culture that a bishop is one person over many churches in the Anglican or in other denominations. But the word is an overseer, and just like the word overseer suggests, it's somebody who is looking over, who is superintending, who is looking at... um, He's like a foreman over a building site. Uh, And that's the role of an elder. In the New Testament, the word overseer, the word elder and the word pastor are used synonymously, interchangeably. You can even find them in the same verse and in the same passages, Acts 20, Titus chapter 1 in particular. So whoever desires to be in that position of oversight, board or elder, you're desiring a noble task and it's one that... Uh, brings with it God's blessing and enabling. Generally speaking, I don't normally like this, but I'm being hugely broad strokes. The overseers and the elders tend to look after the conscience, look after the soul, look after the spiritual aspect of a person's walk with Jesus, tend to. The deacons on this side, the management team and the directors and those, tend to look after the body of what's going on. If they look after the conscience, then the deacons look after the cushions, the chairs that you're sitting on. Because we, it's body and soul. That's what God has placed in leadership. There is a balance between our roles and our responsibilities. The elders uh, tend to be mature leaders, more experienced or some experience. It's not an age thing, it's an experience thing. And the pastors is the word means shepherd, to guide and to lead and to feed. You have the distinction very clearly in Acts 6. Remember the 12 apostles got into trouble with the Greek-speaking widows uh, were being... The Hebrew-speaking widows were being overlooked and the Greek-speaking widows were being fed or something like that, other way around. And the apostles gathered the church together and said, look, it's not right for us to neglect prayer and the Word of God. That's our primary ministry. Appoint seven people from amongst you who will administer, who will um, oversee this very practical and necessary function of caring for the widows. And they did pleased the church and they appointed seven Um, and that became right from the beginning this distinction between roles and functions Um, and pragmatically and historically here's a again this is um, far more solid historically most churches in the world are under 100 in numbers most certainly in Queensland are are that less than 75 many of them And so it's quite possible you could have one pastor and a group of deacons in a church like that because of the numbers of people. Once a church gets over 100 and it gets up to about 300, 400, when it starts getting to that number, you need plural elders, leaders, pastors, whatever, and deacons, you need both. A church of over 400, 500, like us, you have to change the structure again, which is what we have just done. Took a long time to get there, but we got there. That's where you have to separate those upper responsibilities um, so that you can be more effective and efficient. As the church grows, then you may very well need to revisit the structure again, following the principles that God has given us in his word. The general principle is, and I don't like... I'm not uncomfortable with hierarchy, but I don't want us to get that impression. Um, So I don't know how else to communicate this except to say the general principle is of accountability that if you have a leader and you're accountable to the leader, your responsibility is to implement what they direct you to do. It's not your role and responsibility to do what those who are 
below you, I don't know what other word to use, to do. You follow the leader. So the pastoral team has to follow the board. The ministry leaders and the management team follow the pastoral team and their leadership. The board has to follow the members when the members gather together. So everybody is accountable to everybody else. That's the beauty of the structure and that's what God certainly wants. And even in terms of time, just very quickly, I can easily follow rabbits on this, the members meeting will meet a couple of times a year to decide on big issues. That's outlined in the Constitution. So the members are, get on with the ministry that you've got, get on with witnessing and evangelism and building relationships. That's our purpose as a church, is to cooperate with God, to work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus. It's the Great Commission. That's why we're here. And everything we do should be towards that end. Everything we do. And if it's not helping us achieve that end, then we ought not to be doing it. So the members meet a couple of times a year. The board will meet about once a month and they'll deal with vision and policies and directions and goal and focus. And then the pastoral team will meet more likely weekly where they implement the goals and the focus and they follow the policies set by the board. And then the deacons and the ministry leaders and the directors and so on will follow the direction. So everybody can lead and everybody can follow and everybody is accountable. And the ultimate authority, of course, is resides in the Lord Jesus. He's the head of the church. It's his church. And we believe that the Lord Jesus speaks to us as a church through our members' meeting. So if you, as the members, feel that the board is getting it wrong, then you can gather together as members and you can fire the board. The ultimate authority is with the members under the Lord Jesus. So the list of necessary qualifications for a person to be on the board, to be a pastoral team, it's a great job. Let me encourage you to be willing to do it, but don't take it on lightly. What are the qualifications? An overseer is to be above reproach. Well, we're all out there, aren't we? We're all sunk. In some versions, it's blameless. Obviously, this is not written to say that you have to be sinless, that you are perfect. That's not what the word means. What it means generally is in terms of outward observable conduct, as best we know this person, they are without blame. They are above reproach. It doesn't mean they don't mess up or stumble, but it means they deal with it appropriately. They're not scandalous. They, nothing can be held against them because they may have done something wrong, but they've dealt with it. That's what it means. So to be above reproach. This both summarises everything the Apostle Paul goes on to say, and this word is also explained by everything the Apostle Paul says. He begins with this very general concept, reputation. What's your reputation like? And that's how he'll end this list in, this, in verse 7. So your reputation inside, what do people know about you? And your reputation particularly outside, with outsiders. When I became a pastor in New South Wales and 40 plus years ago, part of my requirements was I had to have eight referees, three of which had to be outside the church, non-Christians. So my boss at work and other people at that and neighbours or other people who knew me. So New South Wales, back then, they do it differently now. We took this very seriously. You have to be above reproach. And people, when they look at you, have to respect you. They're the people we're looking for. We're not looking for the sinless ones because they aren't here. We're all fallen. We're all broken. But it is possible to live above reproach. Next, he's to be faithful to his wife. This is an NIV and it's actually a paraphrase, it's not literally a translation of the text, but it's 
exactly right. That's exactly what the word means. The Apostle Paul says when it comes to an overseer's married marriage, he is to have one wife. Literally, it's a one-woman man. That's what the word literally means. Some Bibles translate it, excuse me, as married only once, which again is not a translation and in fact I think it's a very bad interpretation. What the Apostle Paul means, if the person is married, it's not a requirement that an elder has to be married, but if he is married, he's just got one of them. It doesn't matter, he's not saying that uh, you could have been married before and you're divorced and now he's married again. Well, when he's married again, how many has he got? One. A one-woman man, that's what it means. So too, with if he's a widower, or she's a wid widow, then they get remarried, that doesn't disqualify them, provided they have just one partner. That's the literal meaning of it. Let me share this with you, Churchill, Winston Churchill was a lovely man to be able to quote. <clears throat> he went to a banquet in London once, and, you know, high table and very high things, and the the host of the evening asked this question and got everybody around the table to answer it. If you could not be who you are, if you could not be who you are, who would you be? Interesting question, isn't it? Ask each other that over coffee this morning. If you can't be who you are, who would you be? Everybody went around the group and answered it and so on. Came to Winston Churchill, he stood. Everybody's listening because every, catch every word he said. Took his wife's hand. And he said, if I could not be who I am, then I would choose to be Lady Churchill's second husband. <laughs> he was a one-woman man. You think about his answer, what he's saying is, if I had to be married, I'd be married to her. And if I can't be who I am, her first husband, then I would choose to be her second husband. He was devoted and committed. Okay? Nor by extension, as we will come to in verses 4 and 5, if he is married and if he has children, then there are certain criteria about his parenting reflected in the behaviour of the children, which is to be a criteria. It is not requiring that an elder must be married, nor that a an elder must have children, as some people have mistakenly understood the text. Uh, then we come to... Not just his, um, his reputation generally or his marriage. Now we're looking at himself, his self-mastery, his morals, if you like. He is to be temperate, self-controlled, respectable. And just very quickly, temperate in his habits, uh, free from excess. Um, a person who is calm, cautious, not rash, not rushing off and doing things. And somebody who is vigilant and focused, but not somebody who is guilty of excess and rashness. Self-controlled, well, certainly it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a person who is sensible in their decision-making, their balance, they consider things. They don't just come up with um, quick responses to issues and that, they are considerate. You can trust them with very serious matters. They have self-control to consider it. And, of course, they're respectable, they're orderly, they're well-mannered. They are not the sort of a person who gets into trouble um, that sort of a person. And then the Apostle Paul gives us their ministry. Two of the things they should already be involved in. Number one is hospitality and number two, able to teach. 
Somebody who was hospitable, and literally the word means someone who was a lover of strangers. That's what it means. Back in the ancient world, it would involve taking that person into your own home, like in the Old Testament with Lot inviting the angels in and so on. Or like the Good Samaritan caring for somebody. A lover of strangers. Opening heart, open heart, open home. It's somebody who would greet, welcome, uh, welcome visitors to the church service. Someone who was open to people. Um, someone who will support Christian workers. In 2 John, 3 John, it talks about how missionaries are travelling around and there's no hotels, motels for them to have. So it's the Christian people taking them into their own home and giving them a bed for the night and supporting them in their ministry. Hospitable, someone who is like that. Look for that person. And then, this is a very important one, able to teach. They are to be a student of God's word. They're comparing scripture with scripture. They don't have to be theologically trained and they don't have to necessarily be a preacher. Though that's one way to teach. They could lead a, a Bible study group. They could teach in that. They could even teach one-on-one in counselling administration. The point is that they're a person who knows scripture, is learning scripture, is true to scripture and uses scripture to guide God's people in the decisions that they are making. In fact, Titus picks up on this. Uh, talking about the overseer, the elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as he has been taught it, so that he can do two things, encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Able to teach. Look for the people who use their Bibles, who know their Bibles and love their Bibles. 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17 is a subtle distinction between those who are leading, ruling, elders, and those who are teaching, preaching. All elders rule and all elders teach, but there is again a subtle separation of duties. So to be an elder, you don't have to do what I'm doing right now. You don't have to be able to stand in a group of people like this and teach God's word. Though some can and should. So that's their ministry, hospitable and open to tea. Then Paul goes through a whole series of negatives. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And he'll go into verse 6, and not a recent convert. This series of negatives is just a nice way to balance out the sort of person you're looking for. Drunkenness was a problem in the early church. 1 Corinthians, they were coming drunk to the Lord's table. And drink was readily available, like it is in our society, readily available in the ancient world. So somebody who's not addicted, somebody who's not an alcoholic, somebody who is not violent, given to blows, and then jumping gentle, not quarrelsome, they go together. Violent and quarrelsome, they're not somebody who's argumentative, who easily comes to a blow physically or verbally. They don't attack people, not violent nor quarrelsome. Not somebody who causes friction and go around looking for a fight or, you know, throw a grenade into a group and then wait for it to explode and they enjoy that. But in fact, right in the middle of it, gentle, just like Jesus, gentle and lowly of heart. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the last two verses in the chapter, the Apostle Paul says that the Lord's servant is not to quarrel, but he's to be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, but gently instructing the others so that they might come to repentance. 
the Lord's servant, not quarrel, kind, able to teach, gently instructing others. So look for someone who is gracious, who is kind, who is forbearing, who is peaceable, sympathetic to the weak, compassionate to the wounded, and not a lover of money. Tele-evangelists bring the reputation of the church and the name and honour of the Lord Jesus into disrepute where they get on TV and they shed tears and this ministry will have to close if you don't send money today. Well, good, shut it down. It's a disgrace and they shouldn't do it. So don't appoint people who are driven by a love of money, avaricious, greedy. Keep yourself free from the love of money. D.L. Moody used to say that, you know, when a person is thoroughly committed to Jesus because their wallet or their purse is affected by their conversion process. So it is. Not a recent convert. <clears throat> there has to be some water under the bridge. There has to be some spiritual maturity. There has to be some growth through spiritual difficulties. So not appointing a new convert, a recent convert. Don't be hasty, the Apostle Paul says later on in Timothy. Don't be hasty in laying hands on people. Don't appoint them too quickly. Be discerning. Look for these qualities. Look for these characteristics. Look for these runs on the board. For their benefit as well. Otherwise, they will become puffed up, he says. They'll fall under, they'll be conceited. They'll fall under the same judgment as the devil. God doesn't call anyone to greatness. Being an elder, being on the board... It's not kudos for your spiritual, the spiritual elite. It's a place to serve. It's a place to serve the Lord Jesus and to serve his people. That's what Jesus did with Peter. I love John chapter 21, <clears throat> where Jesus is reinstating Paul, Peter after he has denied Jesus three times publicly. And Jesus asks him, do you love me? Three times. And every time Peter answers, the Lord Jesus answers every time, if you love me, look after my sheep, feed my sheep, tend for my sheep. Your attitude to Jesus will be reflected in your relationship with his people. That's why Jesus appoints these people, overseers on the board or elders, to care for his people, look for them. So it's not someone who's just brand new in the faith they need some time that god doesn't call anyone to greatness as i said but he does call us to serve never done this but i would love to i think it's cheeky theologically accurate there was a church in sydney king's king's grove kingsford what? something like that, can't get the name of the suburb, anyway, Baptist Church. And on the front of the church, they had, I'll use our name, Sunnybank District Baptist Church meets here. Not Sunnybank District Baptist Church, but Sunnybank District Baptist Church meets here because the church is people, not a building. And then when it's got down on, often on these street notice boards, it'll have minister or pastor, and that they had minister. And after that, they had every member of the congregation. That's the cheeky bit. Theologically accurate. It's God's will for everybody who was a follower of Jesus to be a member of the church. 
and every member to be a minister and every minister to have a ministry. He calls you to belong to his family, to find your gifts and to be using them for the good of the body and to achieve his purposes. Wouldn't that be good to put on our notice board? Sunnybank District Baptist Church meets here. Ministers, every member of the congregation. I like that. So not a recent convert. <clears throat> Moving on, we come back to the family. He must manage his family well and see that his children, if he has children, see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of respect. What's he like at home? What's he like in his marriage? And the word he uses is manage. It's the same word that is used, it means to take care of. It's the same word used in the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. The only other time this word is used. It's that word manage, where the Good Samaritan comes along and finds this um, beaten up person. He saw it, he felt compassion for them, he went over and he bound the wounds, he poured oil on it, put the man on his donkey, whatever it was, took him to the inn and then he paid money to look after him took care of, ministered to the needs. Elders, overseers, need to be doing that at home. Of course, this is all written in the masculine language and you'd be thinking that it's just men, but it's not, it's both genders. Men and women can be elders, can be on the board and can be on the pastoral team. That's a talk for another day. What's he like at home? What's she like at home? What are the kids like in their response to this person? Because kids know what's right and they know what's fair and they know when that's unfair. So look for a person who is fair, who's consistent, who's kind and loving. Because if they can look after their own kids, they know how to look after their kids, they'll know how to look after God's kids. It's the same skills, it's the same things involved. And I like this quote and I think it's true. Elders will be and can be very busy but they are prepared to be inconvenienced by other people's needs. They're prepared to put themselves out to care for others. A couple more. He must finally, well, not quite finally, but on this list, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. This is a reminder for us, the church is in the world, and it's about being and having a good witness. Does this person pay his bills? Is he well behaved? Does he work hard? We need to consider the people we nominate in terms of what would others say about them? What would their neighbours say? What would their employers say? What do their friends say? Find out. Do some probing. Um, because the reality is that as goes the leaders of the church, so goes the reputation of the church in the community. How many times do you know the story of where a pastor, a leader in the church, has fallen morally? And what's the response to that? The church, his reputation is damaged. Not just his, the church. So we need to be careful in the people we appoint. I want you to notice in these last two, verse 6, see how it ends? If we become concerned and fall under the same judgment as the devil, the Apostle Paul mentions the evil one. And then the last verse so that he won't fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The Apostle Paul is reminding us that this is a spiritual job and Satan is up to his old tricks and he certainly targets church leaders with his tricks and his attacks and his temptations. It's a strategy he's been using for millennia and it works. 
If I can attack the leaders and get them to fall, great will be the fall. So if the church makes a bad choice, if we appoint someone who's not suitable to it, we need to beware of the devil. This gives us an insight in what's the devil up to and what are the elders, the overseers, up against. It is a spiritual battle. So one of the ways, this will be a bit confronting for some, one of the ways the devil works, and he's been using this strategy for millennia, is to get God's people to grumble against God's leaders. Really? Yeah, really. Read through the book of Numbers. Ten times the children of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. Ten times. And each time God responds to it. And eventually he sends them into the wilderness to wipe out that generation. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul draws attention to this spiritual truth. Don't grumble against your leaders. That doesn't mean that you can't hold them to account. That doesn't mean you can't criticise them. What it means is you don't whinge about it. You deal with it. Leaders are not perfect, except for senior pastors. I mean, they are (laughs) not perfect. We're all fallen, we're all broken, we all make mistakes. But don't grumble. That's Satan's favourite weapon. Uses it all the time. What should you do? Pray for them. Hold them to account. And if you are an elder or an overseer, if you're going onto these positions, be on guard. Acts 20. Live above reproach. Watch your character, both the positives and the negatives. Watch your ministry, hospitality and teaching. Watch your family. Watch your reputation and resist the devil. Well, nearly finished. Common sense. I didn't bring it. Must be over there. No, I did. Here it is. A long time ago when we started this process of talking about elders, I wrote this little booklet. If you want a copy, just let me know and I'll send it to you. Or the office will. What should you look for? Do they have a personal desire to serve? Um, What are their present deeds like? Where are they serving now? Where are they involved now? And then the particular qualifications that we've looked at this morning and then to engage in a probing examination. What do you say about them? What do you know about them? If you're going to nominate them, you need to do this sort of process. What do their close friends say? Talk about them. Ask. I'm thinking of nominating this person for a position on the board or this, to be an elder in the life of our church. What do you think? Talk to their spouse. Talk to their children. Talk to their employee if you get the opportunity or could or someone they work with, travel with, or their neighbours. Try to find out about them and see if they'll stand up to the muster of this process. Again, you're not looking for perfection, but you are looking for consistency, a Christ follower. Can they, will they, do they? Can they teach? Can they share truth from God's worth? Will they? want to if they were asked to serve are they willing and do they do they have time you could be the best candidate in the church but you are so flat out at work and it's a period of time in your life where that's got to have your focus so you don't have time to serve 
in this very responsible position. Do you have time? Can they? Will they? Do they? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you rule over all. You're the one who calls and gives leaders to our church, to the church. And you involve us in that process. So, Lord, who do you want to be on the board? Who do you want to be an elder in our church? I pray that you would guide us, show us, and help us to be discerning and affirming of those you are raising up in this noble and very important task. We ask and pray in Jesus' name and for the honour and glory of his church. Amen.